This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. He is Andrew Ram Page Esquire in my best wrestling or boxing announcer's voice uh, from strawman.com. Mr. Page, happy Sunday morning. Good morning to you, sir. How are you? I'm very, very well. I feel better after my Friday afternoon rant. So uh, things, I'm much more relaxed, much more zen, I'm much more calm. You did a lovely job of talking you off that ledge. Thank you very much. How are you this morning? <laughs> Uh, you know, I will say that the therapeutic value of a good rant uh, cannot be overstated. Oh, so it good. is it is a mental health exercise. So you know, uh, and not just for, than- not just for me, for my wife and family as well. So everybody, <laughs> every, everybody wins. <laughs> well, they get plenty of rants too. Don't you worry. No, uh, yeah, there is that. There they is that. they know the playbook. Yeah, not ranting <laughs> at them, just to be clear. But they they certainly know my position on a on a wide array of topics. I can imagine they do, and your poor children, my poor children as well, uh, mate. Uh, <laughs> You know what? They have no choice. Our listeners choose to listen to us, and that is on you, listeners. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. yeah. yeah can't blame us. The kids don't have a choice when the car's locked, you know. And I, I, I can just like make sure the doors can't open from the inside. It's like Dad, we've I'm been not- around this block three times. Why are we still doing it? Because I'm not finished yet, kids. We're not getting out of the car until I've made my point. I've got something to say. Mate, um, let's let's get straight into it. And this is a great question from Jason, directed to me, but I'll direct it to you as well, because I imagine your members might be keen to, to find out the same thing. He just says, hi, Scott. I've always enjoyed your upfront views and opinions. I, like, I think he means rants and carry on. <laughs> uh, you mentioned in your pod that you'd like to invest in companies whose management has skin in the game. Using the same principle, I'd be interested to find out whether your regular personal investments Align with your monthly best buys for your monthly full share advisor service. Regards, Jason. This is a bit inside baseball, but I thought it was worth answering for two reasons. One is because it does align, as Jason says, with the skin in the game thing. And frankly, integrity matters in finance, right? And and you and I have ranted pretty regularly about our views on uh, how... (laughs) Our industry can can uh, not always work out in favour of the clients. Uh, so, Jason, I'll answer on my behalf, and feel free to either answer on your own behalf or, or take pot shots at me as you as you see fit. Um, okay. Jason, I don't always buy the best buys now every month for a range of reasons. Uh, some of those are frankly available cash. Some are the money I already have invested in some of those businesses or similar businesses in terms of diversification and concentration. Best Buys now is not the, the companies, and this is again, bit inside baseball, my apologies for those who aren't members. They're not saying you should buy just these five companies every single month. They are, we have our monthly recommendation, which is our best idea. And the Best Buys now are kind of the best of the rest. In other words, if you want more investment ideas or you don't like the recommendation, or you've already bought it or you've already owned it, you don't want to buy any more of it, you want to buy something else, here's more ideas. And so we're not suggesting, we don't never suggest to our members you should buy the Best Buys now every month. Uh, in, in those five companies, in those proportions. That is not absolutely what the service is about, or the, sorry, the feature. And we make that very, very clear every time we publish this update. So just, just to kind of set the scene a little bit. I will say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speculate, mate, that 95 plus, I, I want to say 98, but I'll be more conservative, of my investments are companies we've recommended at Motley Fool Share Advisor both in the US market and in the Australian market. Um, so do I buy them every single month in proportion? No, I do not. Uh, am I eating my own cooking? Absolutely. Um, 
the vast, 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 vast bulk of my investments are recommendations we've made for share advisors. So yes, I'm absolutely aligned, not dollar for dollar, line for line with every member who might buy them in different proportions, but absolutely skin in the game is super important. And yes, a financial advisor should eat their own cooking. I will give one quick um, uh, but here, mate. And this is, I actually asked on Twitter, oh, maybe two years ago, now maybe longer. Um, the, the problem with skin in the game is you get, you get criticism both ways. If you don't buy your own recommendations, people say, you don't have skin in the game. If you do, people say, ah, oh, you're just pumping your own stuff. <laughs> and so right. it's kind of like, you know, and, and yeah. part of that's cynical, part of that's real. People aren't always trying to be cynical or trying to find fault, but they're kind of, they just have different views on this stuff. And so I actually, I literally, part of, about, again, that whatever it was, two or three years ago, I was like, maybe I should sell everything and buy an index just so I can be completely 100% partial and say, this is my view regardless of what I otherwise own or I don't. And in the end, I didn't change. And, and frankly, most people who responded said, we want you to, be, to have skin in the game, be invested in the ideas you've recommended for exactly that reason. But you're going to upset somebody anyway. So I just, I thought I would, I, I wanted to answer Jason's question, but I also want to kind of put both of those different perspectives on the, on the table. You're not going to please everybody. Someone's going to accuse you of either pumping or not being committed or, or whatever. Um, in the end, uh, I kept the holdings that I had. By the way, the Motley Fool wouldn't allow me to sell them even if I wanted to. I could ask for dispensation. That might be granted. But our trading policy is we can't act against a recommendation. So I can't buy something that's on hold and I can't sell something that's on buy or hold. I'm just not allowed to. Um, so there's that as a, as a general rule. Uh, but that, that's kind of the approach, Jason. Just to, to give you the heads up, um, the vast, vast, vast bulk of my money is invested in our recommendations. Yep, I love that. Yeah, same here. Um, the I, I think it's actually one of the better signals for if you're looking to use a fund manager. Um, if the fund manager themselves doesn't have almost all of their money in the fund, except for maybe the place of residence or something like that. Mm. I, I, that's the that's that's the exception to the rule, but mind yeah. you. Yeah. But I just I just can't get past the skin in the game angle. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a, it, newsletter services are different because there's recommendations all the time. It's not run necessarily as a real money portfolio, yeah. so it's, it's a, a little bit different. Yeah. But for fund managers, it's just like, well, you put your money in the fund and you absolutely one hundred percent exactly aligned, you know. And I, yeah. I think that that is that is something that that I look for. One thing I will push back on a little um, is, I think I think Jason's right. Like you, you want you want alignment. Absolutely, you do. But I so we we opened Strawman recently. It's closed again now, and we had the induction session last night actually with with our new members. Oh, nice. And and one of the things that I'm really keen keen to stress right at the beginning is we're not here to give you tips. Mm. Um, and and the trouble is is that. The tips are really valuable if I've said this before as an idea generator, but I've got to say I, I it really sticks in my craw mm. when particularly if you've said something on Twitter or on telly or the radio or something and you get an email from someone who's like put an unreasonable amount of money in that one thing and it's not gone well and it's all your fault. Mm. It, it sucks because <laughs> one, you don't want people to you worry that people have misunderstood you, but also why would you do that for mm, on mm. the basis of someone that you hardly know who said something in a very, you know, confined context? You know, it would be just to flip it around, not to make it all about sort of trying to protect ego. It, it, it's, 
it's the same if it happened to go really well. I said I said something on Twitter, and a week later, it's gone really well. And then I'm doing victory laps and look how smart <laughs> yeah. I am. It's like, disingenuous. Like yeah. it's just it's a week has gone by yeah. on your long term investment thesis. It means absolutely nothing. Yeah. So it, it does go both ways. But I, the, the point I'm really making here is that and I said this on Friday. You have to own the idea yourself mm. because Scott Phillips is not going to be there to call up at you know 12 o'clock on a Thursday night when you're stressing about something that may <laughs> you know it's and and, yep. and, and it, it, you 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 need that conviction to hold through. And I won't repeat everything I said on Friday, but yeah. it is it is is beside the point that Jason's making, which I 100% agree with, and, and that you've made really well. Yes, absolutely have alignment, mm. but it is your investment decision. It's 100% your investment decision, and and it, it's not it's not a bum covering exercise. Mm-hmm. It's a no. Lean into that and, and own that that way of thinking because if you you can't completely outsourcing your thinking is is just a bit of a cop out particularly for a general advice service that can't know your personal circumstances it can't know your emotional tolerance it can't know a thousand things that are really important to understand if you're ever going to give personal advice which is why there's so many layers around and the distinction between sort of personalized advice and, and general advice a lot of it's sort of bs but but a lot of it's there for a really good reason as, as well so yeah i think i've made the point but but get your ideas from wherever you can get them from but then if you're buying it it's because you've got the conviction to do so and it, yep. it's a very very important point even if it's yep. a bit of a harsh one <laughs> <laughs> it's worth making i i i, I the only thing i will say about it is that shouldn't absolve anybody including me from actually being right and, and a long-term track record matters uh, oh but it'll come out right you'll you'll be there you that that thing will be flashing on a screen for everyone to see regardless of, <laughs> of what happens works, yes. and it should yeah. and by the way and I'll, I'll agree with you it should happen like you know if, if if i can't get any confidence that you've got an ability to do this uh you know it's it's almost disingenuous for you to sort of offer this as as a service so that's that's totally fair enough but you know there's a there's a there's a nuance there i guess that's right mate here's a question a really interesting one from owen uh we go from uh from investing to big picture questions dear scott and ram says owen i've been listening to the podcast for about 12 months and i've really appreciated your perspectives on all things investing finance politics and at the risk of starting another tangent housing and crypto markets <laughs> no you won't i will make sure of that on so much so he says i've followed your advice and i've started putting regular amounts aside each month for investing in shares and broad-based etfs now as you know Owen, we're not giving you advice but we are suggesting that's probably a good idea and well done for doing it i also really like he says that you're both are happy to provide divergent views on various issues which is usually preceded by a sharp intake of breath from scott after <laughs> ram has delivered his monologue <laughs> that's probably just more more bad microphone technique quite honestly so my apologies i wanted to write in as you're both against the stage three tax cuts he says in brackets which look like they are now under threat now this was sent in late jan so they're now actually only this week past the senate so uh, but they've moved on a little bit but he says but i wanted to hear your thoughts on the below points so this is owen's take you both regularly discuss the significant negative impact of inflation on holding cash but as you know inflation also impacts salary earners through bracket creep the ATO shows the number of taxpayers earning more than 180 grand a year was up from 2.9% in 2013-14 to about 3.7% in 2019-20. Australia's top tax bracket isn't particularly high compared to other OECD countries, but it does kick in at a much lower salary in comparison. Now, says Owen, I'm happy to pay extra tax to enjoy universal health care and free education we have in Australia. But the top tax bracket is not reserved for the super wealthy anymore, 
And I think the political commentary about people being on 200K being super rich is unhelpful for a healthy debate on the issue. Yes, I admit I am privileged enough to be on a decent income, although not quite on the highest tax bracket, so I will enjoy the benefits of the tax break. However, I'm a single parent with four teenagers and I would receive less in my pocket each week than a dual income household on average salaries. My thought is that a flatter tax system would negate a lot of tax structures, such as negative gearing in residential property, that are designed primarily to minimise reportable incomes and put them in lower tax brackets. Surely, says Owen, having a flatter progressive tax system and more focus on eliminating loopholes would be a fairer system for all. Keep on fooling on, Owen. Yeah. It's there, mate. Yeah. What do you reckon? Lower no, progressive got- tax system? Yeah, I mean... That is really, really good points. Um, it, it's such a, it's such a difficult debate to have because I, it's, I feel as though when you're talking tax, you've really got to step back and look at all the pieces of the pie. Um, and I think it's very right to, to sort of point out to the bracket creep phenomena. The, the proportion mm. of tax that we're all paying overall um, is higher than it, than it's ever been. Um, and it's part of the design, like cynically maybe design, but that's the bracket creep is very much a factor in 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 polys when they're sort of looking forward at, at various budget estimates and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it's a it's a real sort of creeping um, tax burden. And where do you put the the yeah. lines? I yeah. I don't I don't know. And it's, it's a very detailed debate. We're not going to be able to do it here. I am, for the record, massively pro simplification. Even if, frankly, it allows for uh, some inefficiencies in the system, yep. the, the there there are. What is the point? To give an extreme example, of if it costs me a hundred million dollars a year to run a department to make sure no one's cheating on their tax <laughs> to catch ten million dollars worth of tax fraud a year, like that's yeah, that's, that's just correct. kind of dumb. I'm not saying we just open the gates and like hope everyone's honest. You, no, you li- do living, need living in the grey is, is where the is where it's at. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yep. And 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 you can do things that at at a higher level don't actually make a lot of sense. And that's where I would be so in favour of a vastly, vastly more simplified tax system Mm. Um, because it just gets rid of – it gets – for business owners and for individuals, it gets rid of a huge pain in the backside and makes it much more easier, makes it much much, uh, um, clearer in terms of what I have to report – you know, all, all of these sort of uh, technicalities and loopholes and stuff that creep in are – uh, because of the complexity, you know, like the the the, the simp- there is such elegance in a simplistic system. So I've got no uh, nothing other to say than that because it becomes a very detailed and nuanced debate. Mm. You need, and I'm not an expert in it either. So I'll, I'll hand over to you, mate. No, no, I I, I completely agree. I um I, I want to be treasurer for six months. I don't want to be prime minister, and I don't want more than six months. I just want six months. It's never going to happen, and that's okay. So it's one of those one of those dreams that every now and again I sit back in my rocking chair and think, man, what would I do? Um, I don't disagree with Owen in some of those areas. Uh, there is a he didn't he didn't directly address this, but he kind of made a reference to it. The question of family tax versus individual tax is fascinating, and there is no perfect answer. Um, should families be able to combine their taxes together or not? I don't know. Uh, should a non-working spouse end up, you know, be able to kind of split a tax-free threshold or add, the, add his or her tax-free threshold to the, the other partners and, and, and somehow double it? I don't know. Um, it, someone wins, someone loses in either of those two scenarios. And, and it kind of becomes a social question more than a tax one. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worthwhile debate to have. Um, I, I genuinely don't have a strong view on the answer. 
In terms of loopholes, oh, and this is, I, I am massively with you, mate. I think, I, I would suspect we could lower the, the uh, marginal tax rates for everybody by getting rid of a whole lot of the loopholes. And by loopholes, I, I, always, annoy, I always annoy accountants because that, that kind of has this context of it being somehow illegal and doing the wrong thing. Um, and so they're not really loopholes in the sense that no one's taking advantage of things that aren't supposed to be taken advantage of. Or if they are, it's you know the, the, the tiny edge that hopefully get prosecuted and caught for it. But the, the I'll call them the boondoggles, one of my favorite words. Uh, the deductions that are provided to buy votes or get support from certain groups. Um, and, and it goes right across the spectrum. I, I would... I would suspect that we would be much better off as a country. To your point, around about simplification, mm. I, I would I would target about ninety percent of deductions for removal, and frankly, mm. maybe more. Yeah. Um, Work-related education expenses, for example, uh, yeah. if you're not getting more money for doing the education, don't do it, or get yeah. your employer to pay for it. The taxpayer yeah. shouldn't pay for you to earn more money later. Um, uh, even even non-education uniforms. Yep. Is the taxpayer's responsibility? No, of course it's not. Um, you know, tra- travel travel expenses. Um, frankly, the the diesel uh, tax rebate or, or exception that, that miners and primary producers yeah. get, I would take away. Mate, um, I had to just recently go through like my phone plan and what percentage of my phone calls right, are work related. Right, right. yep. Like, what? A, yep. I don't know. But basically, without sounding too sort of dodgy here, the word mm-hmm. to the account is like just whatever you feel is the maximum you feel is reasonable because yep. I don't, I can't be asked working it out, frankly. Right. It's, it's some decent percentage, but is it 38 or is it 49.6? Like, it's ridiculous. Yep. So get rid, get rid of it. And, and, and by the way, I'm not saying therefore click, click money for the tax department. I'm saying lower everyone's marginal rates by that amount. So you know what? I can't yeah. claim a portion of my phone record for my tax, but I get I, I pay 1% less marginal tax on my on my income. Okay, well, yeah. you know, where's the downside there? And as you say, mate, it removes a whole lot of layers of rubbish of collection, all that kind of stuff. It's why, by the way, and we talked about universal basic income very briefly on, on Friday. One of the reasons I'm in favor of it is if you had a universal basic income, you get rid of the entire welfare apparatus. Because you'd simply say to people, hang on, everyone, you know, if you're, if you're on the age pension, the single parent payment, family tax benefit, uh, disability care, if everyone's got, got a fixed amount of money, and by the way, if you're working, you've got to pay that back in tax, uh, then you can get rid of that the entire apparatus of, of ridiculous, as you say, mate, the, the compliance departments, all that kind of stuff, the, the processing of the claims, the, all just, just goes away. So yeah, I, I would get rid of 90% of the, the tax deductions, loopholes. I am not sure about the actual tax rates owen um i am i'm fortunate enough to be a higher income earner i'm not going to talk about my specific salary but uh, i will i will benefit from the tax cuts as well i feel very uncomfortable that i'm going to benefit more in dollar terms from the tax cuts than someone earning much less money who's struggling more than i am uh i don't know that that's fair uh, now you know everyone everyone says they'd like more money in their back pocket everyone has things they would spend more money on if they had them everyone would like a better car better house more money better whatever for their kids I don't blame anyone for doing that, but in a relative sense, because tax is all relative, right? Tax is simply a question of how much money do we want to take out of income to spend on the things that we all get benefit for. That's all it is. And who who is most appropriate to pay for that and on the basis of what services we're providing. Now, I could pay less tax, and you could pay less tax, you could pay less tax, and we could have fewer social services. That's one option. Or you could say, well, okay, if we're going to have that social service, who should pay how much for it? And I struggle to think someone on 45 grand who's getting taxed and me on a meaningfully higher income who's getting taxed, you know, should we pay, some people say a flat tax is the right thing. Now you didn't, I only said progressive, which I appreciate. Some people say, oh, I should pay 30% flat tax or 20% flat tax. Uh, I don't know. I, I, rec- I reckon it's reasonable for me given I've got my, my basic needs met, same as everybody else. And I've got much, much, much more money left over than someone on a lower income. 
I have no issue paying more in total dollars or a percentage of my income because that's the price of the society that we live in. And frankly, and here's controversial, so it will annoy a whole lot of people. I tweeted during the week about, um, I didn't call it success porn at the time, but let's call it that. Um, the whole idea of, you know, I, I worked hard and I did this, so therefore I deserve what I got. If you didn't have what you, you yeah, if you haven't got it either, you obviously didn't work hard enough. Um, the reality is we're all, we're all a function of our genes and our circumstances. And to believe that somehow people who earn more deserve it more than people who don't is just self-serving garbage and it's fiction and it's just and let's know. not forget luck either it's all luck that's what i mean about circumstance mm. like that, yeah. that's literally what yeah. i mean sorry you're right okay circumstance yeah. of luck I'm, I'm bracketing together but you're absolutely right of course it is i mean if i think about my career i, I won't bore everybody but you know i i happen to work in a I, I kind of work a job in woolies because my sister worked there right i happen to work in an apartment that meant i could go work in a freestanding liquor store that Woolworths owned somewhere else as a, as a second bit of casual work i happened as part of that job to talk to someone in the liquor office with some problems that we had I happened, therefore, to strike up a relationship that meant I could apply for a job in the head office that they, gov- they gave me. My, my then partner found a job in the newspaper that she happened to be flicking through that I applied for and got. I, I happened to work for a bloke who was a fantastic boss who gave me fantastic opportunities to progress with that organization. I happened then to have one of my colleagues leave and ask me to join him at a different company. I happened then, it just goes on and on. The, the, the stupid number of sliding doors moments that had they not happened could be a very... I, I said this before, Ram, you know this. I happened, to email, I happened to see an article about The Motley Fool on Facebook and I happened to then choose to email the CEO on spec. I'm an introvert. I, never would, I wouldn't do this again in my life. Happened to email him. He happened to say, by the way, we're opening in Australia in a couple of weeks' time. Do you want to come and have a chat? I mean, those, it's, it's all, the whole thing is all luck. It is all luck. Have I worked hard? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. Is it sufficient? No, it's not. Anyway, big rant. Um, Owen, back to your question. I, I, I think you know a flatter structure would be great. But here's the thing, mate. If it's going to be flatter, that means someone's paying less. If someone's paying less, either it means someone else is paying more or we're getting fewer services. And so I'm really reluctant to say, let's drop tax rates unless we either identify what we're going to cut service-wise and those cuts are fair and reasonable or we have a different way to raise the income. So I'm actually with you ideologically and philosophically, 100% with you. We should all pay less tax if we can do it more efficiently and or find a way to do it where the people who are the paying, other people are paying more because they should or we're having less services, but that's okay. It's not unfairly disadvantaging anybody. If I get a tax cut and someone else gets less services, I want to be pretty comfortable that that's worthwhile because I'd love to pay less tax, but do I want to take you know the proverbial food out of someone's mouth? Not, not, not in a million years. I, that's, that would be horribly unfair to me. So I have absolute sympathy for your point. I think we should absolutely, that, that should be our starting point, as Ram said, should be, how do we, you know, let's cut taxes. How can we do it? But if we can't, then we don't. We don't do it just because we want to. We do it only if we find the opportunity to do it in a responsible way. Yeah. You said this, but I'll just reiterate it quickly. The the focus is too often on taxation and not what is done with the tax. Yes, absolutely. That, that when, when I'm really shaking my fist at the sky, I don't like paying tax. Don't, don't get me wrong, yes. right? Yeah. But what boils my blood is when I see the money that I worked hard for and gave to the government mm-hmm. and they've, they've you know, pork barreled with yeah, it somewhere correct. is like that's what makes me just see red you know yeah. if that if that money is going to a service that helps enrich the society in which i live and that what i can benefit from or you know or i may potentially benefit from if circumstances change i'm really i'm really happy with all of that particularly it's sort of spent well it's it's mm. it's the misallocation and and the you know, um, at the edges, I assume corruption that we've mm. seen, particularly in New South Wales, right? That, that you just think, oh my gosh, that is that is sickening. 
Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent, mate. Um, let's move on to a question from Graham now. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep you on a short leash, Graham. Is that okay? This this might this might mention Bitcoin. Depend, so depends to, what. Oh, okay. Right. I'm gonna have to. We'll have to <laughs> no see promises. Okay. Scott and Andrew says Graham. I do so enjoy your podcasts, rants and all, along with the traditions in the beginning, such as the straw man homage and promising to keep the episode to only an hour. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Graham. At the risk of elongating another mailbag episode, he says, and then continues, I was wondering about Andrew's view of cash versus Bitcoin on the not your keys, not your coin mantra. Is this mm. not the same for cash? Unless you hold it, do you not own it? Does the bank own it? And even if you hold the bank notes, then it's a form of IOU from a central bank anyway. Yeah. Not your notes, not your not your money? It's, a, it's actually a very deep point. I mean, I, I think unless it sounds really tinfoil hat-ish when you mm. first learn of fractional reserve banking. You think, whoa, that's not right. That can't be right. And it's like, it is. And it's not necessarily nefarious. But yeah, your money's not in the bank. Like this, the, the bank... The, look at the open up the latest um, annual report from Commonwealth Bank. I have assets and liabilities. Um, their liabilities are deposits. People have said, "Here, Scott's gone up to the bank and said, here, take my money, please. I want to keep it with you because I don't want to stuff it under a mattress. Hopefully, you'll give me a bit of interest and you'll give me some banking services around mm-hmm. that, so I can I can pay with a, a card or an app on my phone. I can transfer money easily. That's it. And the bank goes, thank you very much." And generally speaking, for every hundred dollars, it allows them to sort of lend out a thousand dollars, and they just mm. they just change the ledger. So no, it's not there. Which is why bank runs are a thing. Which is why Silicon Valley Bank and all the rest happened a year ago today. Actually, very close uh, to a, exactly a year ago. Oh wow, there you go. Yeah, and um, uh, so yeah, it's not there. You if and this is a very literal statement. If you the the only money that you can sort of say you own as any kind of bearer instrument mm. is the cash in in your purse or wallet. And and even that is a, is just a right, promise right, from right. the central bank, right? So it's just it's just promises and faith all, all the way down. So mm-hmm. um, just you know, how does that differ from Bitcoin? I, I guess the the fundamental difference is is that there is no counterparty. That and that's the mind blow. Like, and I don't want to get too far into it, but that's that's the thing that takes you so long to wrap your head around is that there is no counterparty. It is a bearer asset in the same way as a lump of gold is. Just it's a digital entity. And that is, that is profound I, to me. Anyway, I find I find that remarkably profound. So, you, it doesn't mean that if you buy an ETF, you know, you shouldn't buy a Bitcoin ETF or some kind of exposure to it, or you hold it on exchange. But there is a counterparty that's now involved, and for most people, the counterparties mm. would be very safe and regulated, and you don't have to worry about it. But the beautiful thing, the mind blowing, the paradigm shifting thing, is that if I own the secret words, I control them, and I don't. I don't need anyone's damn say. I don't need anyone's permission. I don't need anyone's okay. I don't need, you know, I, it's mine. And, and that is to do that digitally, man, that's a, that's a big deal. I Let's go to a question from Greg. <laughs> Moving right along. No, 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 no. I, I think you, sorry, you don't think you're perfect. I don't, I, I have nothing to add as Charlie Munger might say. Yeah, yeah. I love um, it. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting one. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Greg says, Hi Scott and Andrew, feel free to insert whatever accolades or past podcast references here that you feel are appropriate. In which case, Greg says, Scott, Andrew, your podcast is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. In fact, I wish I could pay you more money for it. You should be up for podcast awards everywhere and your bosses should give you more money. Uh, thank you, Greg. 
Okay, okay we'll answer your question now. Yeah. Okay. A couple of things I've been thinking about, says Greg. Firstly, if Solpats and Brickworks own 40% of each other's shares, does oh, that man. mean the board is not really answerable to other shareholders? As to get a 50% vote against them is virtually impossible. Yes, Greg, that's exactly what it means. And that's exactly why uh, this approach has been actually actually outlawed. Yeah, you're not allowed to do it anymore. This was done almost 50 years ago, I think now, um, basically to stop a takeover. Um, There was a whole lot of corporate raiders out at the time who would look at companies uh, they felt were undervalued and would say, hang on, we can buy up all the shares and take this thing over. Uh, to stop that happening, these guys bought shares in each other, basically to stop stop exactly that problem, uh, which worked beautifully. Uh, the regulator has said, oh, it's not so cool. You can't do that anymore. It's kind of not very shareholder friendly. Um, and and the regulator is kind of right. I, I have, I'm a Sopatch and Brickworks shareholder, by the way, and very happily so. Um, I do think on one level, it's probably the right decision for the regulator to make. On the other hand, as long as it doesn't happen after the fact... As long as you know what you're buying, I kind of feel like it's a little bit too OTT. No one made me buy Solpat shares. I bought them after the cross shareholding. I could have simply said, no, I don't want to buy them. I don't like that. As long as it's clear and as long as it's not done after the fact, I kind of don't see the problem. Personally, mm. that's just me. Uh, it's being grandfathered that are allowed to keep it because it was already in place. Um, but new businesses aren't allowed to do that. In terms of yeah. what does it mean? Yes, it absolutely means that. Um, so it means you have to trust the executives and the directors implicitly because they can do whatever they want. Um, now, they also have a lot of their own money tied up in this thing, so there's some value there. But yeah, it, honestly, if Rob Milner and the board wanted to screw me over, they could do it tomorrow. And that could be done in a way that couldn't be done in another company, probably. Now, there are still laws that require directors to act in the best interest of all shareholders, for example. So if I wanted to sell Pats to go into the Bitcoin mining business and they chose not to, and 60% of the shareholders wanted it but couldn't quite get a majority vote, then yeah, they, they could use that casting vote for a whole lot of different things. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's a, it's a risk, absolutely. I actually also think it's a benefit because uh, we've also had, by the way, other uh, perpetual and Mark Carnegie. Mark Carnegie is actually a good guy. Um, I was on the other side of him on this one. They wanted to kind of break this cross shareholding up because they said the businesses are worth more separately. In other words, they could sell them, they could break them up, sell off the assets, make a bit more money out of it but by, do, by making the breakup work. Now, that's exactly what Solpats wanted to stop. And frankly, their 30 plus year history of market beating performance is more than enough for me to say, you know what, I'm happy to let them keep doing it. Um, and if they were broken up earlier and sold off earlier or people had done other things with them, would it be better or worse off? Don't know. So there's, mm-hmm. an, there's an ideology and a, a, a philosophy there and there's a pragmatism there. I tend to be pretty pragmatic as a, as a matter of course rather than ideological, although I, I probably can be a bit of both depending on the mood. Um, so yeah, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, yes, yes, a vote against them would be practically impossible. And so that, that's why it stopped. Um, uh, but again, it's like, if you know what you buy, I, here's the other thing, by the way, would you rather that uh, or, a, or a badly managed companies where lots of short-term fund managers who just want a result in the next two months uh, so that we don't, um, you, you know, so that things don't, don't go, go, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a proverbial nice way to describe that without using the phrase. <laughs> go badly, let's say that. Uh, you know, sometimes the theory, what does Yogi Berra say? In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm very, very happy, but you're absolutely right, mate. Your, your, your um, objection or at least, uh, at least your observation is, is true. Ram? Yeah, about every three years, 
I go, oh, yeah, the cross shareholding. How does that work again? <laughs> yeah, that's all. And then true. I figure it out. And yep. then three years later, I go, oh, yeah, <laughs> how does that work again? Because it, it is, yep. I owe 50% of something that owns 50% of me. So then that just, this is recursive kind of, it just, <laughs> my brain melts. And, you know, you can work it out. I'm, I forget. I, I'm, at, I'm at that point of the cycle again where it's like, I completely forget how it works. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, because, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not so much from a will I be screwed over perspective, but just like when trying to value the yeah. company. I'm buying a company that owns fifty percent of that company that happens to own fifty percent of me. So, yeah, exactly. how much That's am right. I? That's right. What do yeah. I own yep. here? Yeah. Do you have a? I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have a quick and easy explanation as to how that maths works? No, there's no easy way to do it. There's two ways you can do it. You can uh, you can value them both together effectively, and then oh, yes. cross out the you, you kind of it's almost the algebra. You kind of you cross out the the, the thing on both sides of the equation. Yep. Um, so yep. that's one way you can do it. The other way you can do it is the shareholding is you 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 assume that it is the shareholding is separate from the operations. Mm. So you're sharing the income with oh, a yeah. shareholder. Yeah. Uh, so take Solpats, for example, 40% of Solpats owned by Brickworks, roughly. You, you take out the shareholding for a second and just say, right, Solpats makes this much money from its own business, gets this much money mm -hmm. from Brickworks. Yep. So that's that's its total income on a P&L basis. Yep. And then it shares that with all the shareholders, 40% of whom happen to be Brickworks shareholders. Right. And right, so Brickworks right. get a, gets a dividend flow or a share of the earnings from that. So that's you kind right. of, you, you can do it right. either way. It's still messy and it, it's a bit hard to get your head around, but that's, that's, how, you, that's how I've done it anyway. Yeah. I'll ask you again in three years. <laughs> uh, Greg, second question. Also, regarding the difference between Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi, you've mentioned before they have very different price-to-earnings ratios despite their similarities. Could this be related to the fact that the, as a franchisor, Harvey Norman generates a proportion of its revenue as rent and not retail sales? Although they operate in the same industry, the way the company gets its revenue as opposed to revenue of the franchisee business is very different, isn't it? Thanks for your insights, Greg. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. You go first, mate. This one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They are. They're. They're. They're, they're very different. And I, I often rail at these sort of industry classifications and how they're yeah. sort of practically yeah. applied yes. because yes. They, they there are two companies that can be very similar at a surface level, but just so fundamentally different in structure and where the earnings and stuff come from. So yeah, they're very. Mm -hmm. They are both where they are similar. And the, the the similarity that matters, I guess, is that they are largely discretionary retailers. Yep you're going to be somewhat cyclical against the the economic cycle and the rest of it but under the hood yeah very different businesses very different businesses and i think i think greg you actually make the right point i, I don't i don't know i've ever intended to suggest that arbitrary they're worth more or less because of that but actually to ram's point you're very you're very very good point that is the difference that is the point is these things are different and so dot 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 and and really thinking that through is is fascinatingly important um i'll make you i'll, I'll make a simple one because I, well, I don't, i'm not trying to avoid the jb harvey one but Meyer and djs at one point were trading on the same pe or very very close to it yep and yet Meyer had a whole lot of leases owned almost no property DJs own two really large and valuable city CBD stores, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. Now, on one hand, the cost of that shareholding isn't necessarily that, that dissimilar, right? Because we've talked about opportunity cost a million times. Mm. They could rent that, that building out to somebody else and get an income stream from it. They could sell it and, and pay rent instead. And if you paid rent, your profit would be lower. So again, the E would be different, uh, but your asset base would be different. Now. It's not to say either or either one of those is necessarily better or worse. It's just thinking through the reality of hang on, how is that how is that true? 
And what does it actually mean? Does it mean that Coles and, uh, sorry, Coles, does it mean that uh, DJs and, and Meyer are equally being valued by the market? On one hand, yes, as a multiple of earnings, but what about as a proportion of the balance sheet? Or what about mm. the assets they hold, or the quality of those assets, or the defensiveness of the business? And I think the, the key point here, and again, this is why I love the, the question you ask, is that's exactly the question you should ask, is don't just look at the PE and say, two companies with a PE of 13 are the same. They may have you know, different industries, different growth prospects, different profitability, different futures. Uh, they may have different balance sheets. They may have different obligations. That's exactly why, uh, and again, you've, you've absolutely nailed it, mate, because this is exactly why you should be looking past just single numbers and saying, well, a PE of 13 isn't the same for everybody. What if, dot, dot, dot. Is it a cyclical business? Is it a super, super, super acyclical business? You know, toll road or, a, or, or you know, something that just does have no cyclicality at all. Okay, that matters. Where is it in the cycle? Um, how exposed is it to recessions or, or economic booms? Those are exactly the right sorts of questions. So, mate, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say yes. <laughs> yes, they are very different. And that, yes, that's exactly why. And yes, that's why you should, you should think more carefully as you are uh, about the way we think about, um, about managing that in particular. Yeah, and just the, the very high level view um, would be that by doing the sale and lease back, as it's called, like sell your your property and then just lease it back off someone else, let them run run all of that kind of stuff, is that you've now got a bunch of equity that you can invest potentially to get some really good returns on, or you 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 have a less lazy balance sheet. Um, you know, you may have, uh, as a result of it, a far better return on equity. You know, the, the profit that you're making, but in proportion to the net assets of, of the business. Right. If you've got uh, the property, well, you mm -hmm. you may be less efficient, for want of a better term, but you are far more robust in terms of the hard assets that underpin what you actually own. There's mm -hmm. there's a good deal more sort of of a backstop, uh, you know, in terms of value held on the balance sheet. Illiquid though it may be, it is real value. Whereas in these other enterprises, all of the value is in is in the operating characteristics of the business, not in not in not in what it sort of holds in its balance sheet. So there's no right answer. It just it depends on what you want to what you prefer. And I would like all else being equal, with a very very attractive business model and competent management team. Yeah, I'd probably go towards just just lease what you need. And put everything you can into generating very high rates of rates of return on invested capital mm. would be the this quote unquote sophisticated answer. But I still have a huge amount of sympathy for those that err towards the conservative side of things, even if it means that they are leaving a little bit of money on the table, because it's kind of like an umbrella. You don't need it until you really need it. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, that's right. Exactly. Yes. And it's not. It's not. I think you can. Like, that, like that's that that's so the advantage times. of Harvey Norman, right? Like it's just yeah. it's got that property there as a backing. So it's you know is it better or worse? It's a personal decision yeah the, the the those that are those that have less capital on the balance sheet will do much 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 better in the good times yeah but they come under much more threat and risk in the bad times you know what i love mate we get some great questions from really great i'll say simple questions or beginner questions for people who don't know and want to know and i love that and also love the fact that a lot of our listeners who've been around the block a couple of times have thought through some of this stuff are kind of going hey what about so mm. here's one from bernard mate which again is just a really really thoughtful question dear scott and andrew i've learned from you fellas that companies with strong balance sheets can profit when a, here we go, when a downturn in the economy happens, yeah. as this is the time when cashed up companies get the chance to buy cash starved companies for a knockdown price. Quick yep. break here, mate. Um, Woolworths bought the one hour delivery company Milk Run after it mm. went broke. Now, I don't know whether mm -hmm. it'll do well or not, 
Milk Run was you know, flush with cash and trying to take on the big guys. Uh, when the cash dries up, Milk Run goes broke. Will you say, yep, we'll have that. Thank you very yeah. much. Now, again, whether it's whether it's an example or not in time is an open question, but this is exactly what Bernard's talking about. Hey, maybe there's value in it just by taking it and sweeping it under the rug, right? Yeah, there is that too. <laughs> okay. Bernard goes on, quote, this got me thinking about the so-called Bank of Mum and Dad and Australian property. Then in square brackets, I like the square brackets too, but he says, start limbering up, Rant, as we see you making your way back to the fence. (laughs) In square brackets. I'm in middle age, says Bernard, and very few of my friends and family have bought property uh, to live in without the help from the bank of mum and dad. This is in contrast to my mum and dad and the parents of my friends who are able to buy their own homes without any help from their family and usually with only one pay packet back in the late 70s. My thinking is, Aren't the families who have a healthy bank of mum and dad just like strong companies who have healthy balance sheets and therefore won't these families simply buy up the houses that go on sale when and or if there is a major downturn in Australian property prices? Oh, interesting. As homes have become and maybe always were financialized products, isn't this simply a transfer of assets from the unlucky and or not so well healed to the very lucky and rich? Isn't this how capitalism works? The strong eat the weak, so to speak. I'm not saying this is okay, or that it should or shouldn't be this way, but simply that this that it seems this is the way financial systems work, when there is little will to correct distortions and rules are in place that seem to exacerbate those distortions. Yeah. Or will the whole thing collapse if property prices go south, no matter how much money the bank of mum and dad has? Full on, straw away, love your work, he says. <laughs> He then says, as a long-term listener, I've reflected that much of what you two talk about does come to pass in the long run and that the buy to hold, know what you own and why and don't pay too much approach seems to work over the very long term. Thanks to you fellas and The Motley Fool in general, I'm beating the ASX 200 since 2019. But as you two point out, I have barely underperformed the market at times too. Lord, please grant me patience now, he says. (laughs) Uh, okay, so another, another thought. I'll hold that one for a second. It's an interesting question, mate. The bank of mum and dad as as the proxy for the healthy balance sheet. Uh, what do you think, mate? Is, is is this the way things are going to go, absent any corrective action? I mean, it's definitely a structural advantage. If the folks have some money that they can lend you, you've got a you've got an edge over those that don't. Hundred percent. I mean, mm. I, I don't think you can argue that point. Um, I don't know that in any let's not not try and predict but just sort of go through various scenarios so mm. just under the for whatever reason we do see a meaningful sort of pullback will that just mean that all of the cashed up people rush in and buy it i'm not so sure and the reason is is that there's a distinction between those that have strong balance sheets because they've got millions of dollars in cash sitting in the bank or go back to our earlier point that the bank has a liability to repay should should they ever demand their money back um, versus money, quote unquote, that is represented in the equity value of your property. So play it through and think about it this way. So let's say, I don't know, property falls 30%. Now the bank of mum and dad is really, in most cases, just the equity that mum and dad have in their home. And now they've got, like everyone else, they've got 30% less of it. Mm. They're probably finding themselves in a much more difficult lending environment too, because the, all of a sudden the lender is going to be, whoa, pulling their heads back in and this is really scary. We're going to really up up uh, our, our game here. Mm. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily think so. It, it, this is what's so dangerous about leveraged speculative bubbles, which is the Australian property market in my <laughs> humble opinion. Uh, because when it unwinds, 
There, there is, it's all, it's debt on debt on debt, turtles on turtles on, on sort of turtles. So you buy your house, but I don't know, $500,000 back in the day, you, you put $200,000 into it. And let's say you just keep that there as an interest only, and then the house is worth a million dollars all of a sudden. I mean, all that money, quote unquote, has kind of just really appeared out of nowhere. But, but what we have found is, and this is what's been the driving force of, of much of the price appreciation, is that rather than just saying, well, that's really nice, um, because I can't, if I sell, I'm out on the street and I have to buy it back. Mm. So it's sort of it's sort of like this. It's more just a notional equity value, which basically means I've got added collateral as determined by the lender to to lend to me. And so I've taken that money and I've I've rolled it into another house, and the equity is expanded there, and I've taken that equity. So so when it does roll back potentially, and there you'll see all of these sort of TikTokers out there talking about their 15 <laughs> investment properties, and, and I did it all before 25 just by stacking yeah. shelves on Woolies. Like yeah. yeah, the only way you did that is by going very much up to the eyeballs in debt, and you don't have a like you might have a, a huge pile of assets on your balance sheet, but the liabilities almost match it, and the and the slightest fall in asset value wipes you out completely, and mm. all of those properties are going to mean absolutely sweet nothing uh, when when it comes time for you to try and be opportunistic and buy on a big dip. So I, I think structurally there's there's challenges with that assumption. And it's why I think a, a more healthily structured housing market would be one that was more underpinned by the utility value or by the cash flow value that it gets from rent. There was some something, I think it was in the, oh, what, maybe the telly or somewhere the other day, it was on Twitter. They're talking about the percentage of investment properties negatively geared in various suburbs. And my suburb was mentioned, so I took particular <laughs> note of it. But they're all really high. It was 90%. Right. You know, it, it, it was sort of 90%. So again, these people, I'm sure, walk around saying, well, I've got this much dollars in property. Mm. But what they're not telling you is, is that it's got an equally amount in debt. <laughs> and in fact, the property is generating such pathetic cash flow that I can't even cover my interest payments. I'm happy with that for some bizarre reason. I'm designing it that way. But, but you know, on, on any kind of pullback. I don't have the dry, like we said before, with the companies that have the dry powder to to, to take advantage of difficult mm. times, the, the dry powder won't be there because the dry powder was never there to begin with. It kind of like was materialized through a higher valuation estimate by the market at large and underpinned by a massive pile of debt. So it, it things when these things unwind, that's why they can unwind a lot faster, sharper, and more scarily than, than people tend to assume. Right, because leverage works both ways. Yep. Um, Bernard, I, I kind of agree with you, Ram, for the most part. I think, Bernard, the difference, I suppose, between the bank of mum and dad and general investment property is important. Um, and in the sense that we talk about the bank of mum and dad as helping people into their first homes or their own homes. Not even first homes, their own homes, zone occupiers, right? So I want to buy a unit. I borrow some money off the, off the folks and they help me into that unit or house. And then I, I own it and that's my house. Um, that if there's only one, if it's only an occupied property, it, it doesn't change the dynamics of the market meaningfully across the market. In other words, we're not creating more investment properties relative to owner-occupied properties. We're pushing the price up, but if I sell my house to some other, to some first home buyer who's using the bank of mum and dad, they're going to be buying my house. There's no, there's no change to the dynamic of the number of owner-occupiers. Uh, the price goes up, as I said, but it doesn't change the number. In, this is a little bit different to businesses buying other businesses where they are trying to effectively act as investors where they would buy the second and third income streams, i.e. Woolworths buying Milk Run or something else. Mm. With the, actual cash, cash in most cases, right? right? Yes. Yeah. But, but, also, but also they're doing this, they're buying it as an investment property. So if the bank and mum and dad is helping people buy investment properties, then Bernard, you're absolutely right. If there is the use of existing capital to buy more properties that they're not otherwise living in, then yes, the, the rich end up with more properties overall rather than just pushing the price up of those properties. So it depends on 
think about monopoly how many yeah. how many houses how many hotels on each, on each on each street you know if there's if 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 we're just simply you know changing from owner occupier to another owner occupier then it doesn't really change the dynamic of the market from that perspective in terms of the rich hoarding more of the properties now uh, there is a little bit of a and probably longer than we've got and probably need to set it up a bit differently but there is a, a way in which you will see property in general owner occupied property be more likely to be owned by those who have family wealth because they can bid more uh, highly and therefore take more than their share. Yep. So that's absolutely true. That's very true. But it but just very quick injection. That, that's the only at this point in time. That's the only people who are buying property to live in, right? Is is is, is those that have access to that? Because if you don't and you're under thirty five, hmm. you know, unless unless you're an MBA all star or a surgeon or a you know a QC or something, hmm. that is absolutely the case. You you must have that access to buy but, a house, well, particularly in We're certain at that point. CBDs in certain parts of the country. But yes. Yes. Oh, look, maybe not in Cooperpedia, right? But you know, I think the, the, while that is true and you will get much more affordable housing in the regions, they don't have the yeah. same employment opportunities and pay Correct. the same amount Correct. as well. So it's sort of I, – I, I think that that's – when you look at when majority of us live or aspire to live, Correct. for better or worse, it's kind of true, right? Correct. So just make that, I'll just make that point. We don't have to speculate about that anymore. We're here. We're here now. Yep. So that's – so that that's so, – so in terms of it, – it, it depends on what outcome I think you're kind of – point to Bernard um, again but again that that's price rather than kind of accumulation or you know if you talk about the rich kind of buying more and more properties it doesn't I don't think that's happening on an occupied level they're just bidding up more for it so they're more able to get to the property rather than buy up more than one you, you will get some who have a lot more money and are using that to buy up more properties that's absolutely happening I don't know that it's likely a very large impact on um, as Ram says, most of the people with multiple properties are just leveraging up stupidly rather than genuinely doing it. Now, I've got to say, and this is kind of a slight tangent, but not really, my bigger concern is kind of the extension of your point, Bernard, which is actually multi-generational. Um, if, I can, if I can pay my house off and then I can either buy or help my kid buy their own home, they don't have to pay the mortgage or the rent, so they can afford to then invest more money. And if you, if you kind of play this through the generations, this is why taxation is important. Frankly, we should be talking about inheritance taxes, which again will annoy a, a large portion of our listenership. Um, if, you know, if, if, I'm, if I get mortgage-free and then I help my kids get mortgage-free and they help their kids get mortgage-free, and that, that expands over and over again, think about a different family who aren't mortgage-free, who can't help their kids. Those kids either never, never buy or buy a cheaper property. They can't help their kids. And so if you kind of flow that through any meaningful way and you think about the composition of society and the proportion of that and what that does, we talked about on Friday, but owning capital in the context of AI um, uh, disruption, I don't even think AI disruption is the key one here. I think it's just the intergenerational inequity that's being promulgated by by the society that we're in. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in terms of the, uh, let me finish. Um, it's not a bad thing in terms of the, incentives that creates because we like the incentives of capitalism we like the the outcomes you get when you incentivize people to do well what we also need to make sure as a society is that we don't let that become so distorted that we end up with effectively a feudal society and i think that's my biggest concern if you let that roll out and if you put self-interest aside people say oh that's fine i want to give something to my kids because they should i've worked hard and they should get it and i don't i don't blame them for that view um, but as you said many, many times, Ram, if you designed a system and then had to, had to be assigned a random place in that system, um, I don't know whether generational inherited inequality, I, th- I think of all, of all the inequalities, I think inherited inequality is probably the most pernicious because yep. once the structure of society is such that you can't get out of that, you're back in a class system where you'd have no choice 
to escape the class in which you are born. I think that's that's pretty ugly. Yeah, I, I guess what, what I worry about too is that this this drive for ever increasing acquisition of property comes from a really hum, uh, a noble place. You know, mm-hmm. I want to I want to make sure that I look after myself Correct. and my family and and build wealth and for the long term. Yep. What's wrong with yep. that? I, I'm trying yep. to do that too. Correct. So it's, uh, you, you know, I, I I get all of that. I just I think that we have pulled every rabbit out of the hat. Let's go through them, right? Back in our parents' day, dad, dad's income was assessed. Mum wasn't even on the radar, right? Mm-hmm. Thankfully, that changed. Um, okay, so now, now every every party of the any both parties in a, in a partnership have to work, yep. right? And then and then we had it's to have women's liberation of women's enslavement, effectively, because they've gone from I now have the choice to work to actually don't have a choice not to work anymore. You got to work need to if you want to buy a house. Yeah, you got to work, right? Yeah, and then and then and then okay, well let's let's reduce the. Prudential, um, the, the APRA lending standards. Okay, we've mm-hmm. done that. Reduce buffers. Okay, let's add more government stimulus to, on top of this. Yep, let's add some tax breaks. Okay, yeah, we've done that. Uh, okay, let's turn the taps on with immigration. Let's just like plow, you know, three mm-hmm. Canberra's worth into the country every year. Okay, well, boom, we've, we've done that. Yep. Um, um, interest rates have actually gone to zero. Uh, oh, you know, maybe, oh, maybe we can intergenerationally tap equity. Okay, yeah, that'll really work because there's a whole bunch of okay, yeah, brilliant. Okay, let's 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 do that. Um, let's have twenty year no nah, thirty thirty five year mortgage. Actually, there's fifty year mortgages out there. Okay, we're going to do fifty year mortgage. You are getting to a point where it's just like if you want to look at it structurally, for this thing to continue at this current pace, new money has to come in. As I've said before, everyone loves to talk about the property ladder. The ladder only moves up if there's people jumping on the bottom rung and pushing everyone up. And when no one can get on the bottom rung, despite every single incentive and, and yeah, right. um, you know, d- enabled to do that. I mean, that's it's a genuine question. What next? Mm-hmm. What, what What's the next trick that we have to make sure that this party going? Like, yes, there will always be a demand for housing. And yes, it will always be a very desirable thing and people will always try and do it. But to imagine that I'm sent, um, you know, that this two billion, two million dollar fibro two bedroom house on a three hundred square meter block in Blankstown is going to continue to double every seven years. I just it just stretches credulity in 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 a very logical and mathematical sense that it's sort of like I I feel as though it's a kind of problem that will sort itself out <laughs> in in time. And that those that have tried to sort of hoover everything up and suck it from themselves. Maybe you can do that if you've got incredible cash flows uh, and, and that it's actually being able to – you've done that in a way that's very sensibly structured. But I just suspect a lot of people have done that just, again, through debt. And I'll make the point again. It goes both ways and it can unwind very quickly. I think that's true on a per-person or per-house basis, Ram. But I also think that is a that is a subset. I know you're talking about the investors who expect more than that. I know it's been something you've been – uh, right about for for a long time. Uh, only every my, single person I ever speak to. But yes. well, my big, my big concern though is those who acquire assets for cash and then can keep going from there. I mean, you're, oh, you're different right, story. Yeah, right, different, that, that's different story. More, yeah. That's the group I think is more potentially damaging for societal cohesion because that's the group that's just and you know it, it's capital as you to your point, it's capitalism one hundred one. It's literally I'm buying more shares. I'm reinvesting those dividends in more shares. Right now, the the, the property version of that over time does exactly the same thing with well, those who can afford who can afford to do mm. and even if the the gains that you're talking about having you know going away because they're not we're not keeping adding fuel to the fire doesn't mean the fire goes out it just means it stays at the current level and mm-hmm. those with the cash and the ability to do it who don't have to borrow or yeah. who can borrow less because they've already got the cash 
they become the buyer of choice because they're the only ones who can afford it. Yep. And then that, that does tend to, at some point, and it might be a couple of generations, a few generations away, but it compounds itself to the point where, you know, I, I'm hoping to leave money to my kids and they will get a better start than the neighbor who doesn't have money to leave to their kids. Yep. And so they leave money to their kids. Now, you know, in three generations, some kid will be a, you know, a hopeless junkie or something, he'll blow it all and that's fine, but everyone else will do okay. And you know, if, if I'm able to and allowed to continue to roll an inheritance out, then at some point, the kid that's born literally with the silver spoon, mm. the, the gap between the silver spoons and the not silver spoons, even aside from the speculation that you talk about, and you're absolutely right, it's not that you're not right. I just think the, the implication for the bank of mum and dad uh, that Bernard talks about is that at some point the cash buyer becomes the dominant buyer and I, then I, can start yeah. to accumulate in large numbers. I agree with that. I, my thesis or my proposition, I suppose, is that I would I would speculate, and I don't have the data in front of me, that that the vast majority of people who have been acquiring property have been acquiring on equity. Hmm. They're, they're, incomes haven't gone up tenfold, right? Right. You know, um, you, you, how, the asset price has expanded and all of a sudden you had collateral that you could lend against that you never could have before. Yeah. And that collateral is just, you know, an IOU to the bank. I and mean, that's, that's what you've spent. The bank literally created new money. When you bought the house, they deposited that into the vendor's uh, bank. It didn't exist before. Now it does. It's matched off against your IOU liability. And that's just been pushed in and in and in and in. And it's just sort of on a cash. Yeah, there's a bunch of people just sitting around with all the money in the world that can just go in there. And it doesn't really matter what happens to asset values. I can buy it at a set price. And I can rationalize it against some like reasonable kind of cash flows. I 100% agree. I just don't, I don't know how many people in Australia have, are in that position versus those that are just, you know, uh, very big landlords because they've, they've, they've just leveraged the whole way through. And that's, that's yeah. the more dangerous part. I think that's true. Mate, uh, we, we did wrap up, but I want to finish with Bernard's PS. He says, uh, PS, I do hope you two keep these pod machine rants going well into your dotage. <laughs> I can just see you two now as your avatars sit on battery operated rocking chairs, beards flowing to the floor. As Rant shakes his fist at how expensive Australian property still is <laughs> and laments that he still can't buy a vegan sausage roll with Bitcoin, while Dr. Calm sagely sighs and reflects on the sprawling housing estate he built on his once rural property, marveling at how many zeros his bank account has in it. So Full on, happen. Bernard. It's so, that is such <laughs> the vision of the future. I'm not sure that's something we want to oh, necessarily dear. look for, but let's... Let's hope, let's hope that things uh, net out nicely. Uh, mate, that is all we've got time for. Uh, a fascinating conversation as ever. If you have questions for us or comments, info at fool.com.au is the way you can get hold of us. You can follow Ram on Twitter, as you should, at sage underscore Simeon or at strawman invest. If you want to follow strawman.com and you should, uh, jump on at TMF Scott P on Twitter and Insta or Scott Phillips Money on Facebook. And until... Friday afternoon, when I'm sure Ram will join me again for some more Motley Fool money goodness. And maybe an announcement, or maybe not, about something that might come in the future. I don't know. Can't say too Mm, much. Can't say too mm, much. Until then, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.